And welcome back to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhry. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's tale is about a writer who, let's just say, gets a little too involved in their story. Please enjoy Bridgewater Triangle. I get there late, like I always do. Like it's almost part of the job. Not only because it's a drive from the city, but because that's the thing with stories. It's hard to write them as they happen. Impossible, of course, to write them before they happen, despite what people might tell you. That's certainly the case with crime stories. If we knew the crime before it happened, we would stop it. Or at least I'd like to think so. I'd like to think we wouldn't just wait for the story. So, because I'm driving from the city, and also because that's how stories work, I get to the crime scene late, and it's mostly washed away. Mostly, but not entirely. That's the thing about cops. There was always something they left behind. I had to piece together what happened in my head after the fact, but they've left me a pretty clear picture. So much so that I may have hardly needed the police radio I keep in my car. I know, look, that there are app versions of it on your phone, which I also have, but the one in the car just makes everything feel more appropriate. The scene that I slosh my way into in the Freetown Fall River State Forest seems like the leftover from a slasher film set. The rain has washed away most, but not all of the evidence. Certain crimes leave such horrid fingerprints on the world that, well, nothing can wash them away. What I see are the remnants of some sort of ritualistic sacrifice. Serpentine symbols carved into trees and stones, their curves unfamiliar, different from the jagged runes I expected. There are stick figures hanging from the branches above my head, and brush cleared away to make room for a crowd. A stump in the middle that seems to me an awful lot like a podium. Signs of something massive being dragged through the space. What isn't present is what I overheard on the police radio. Two people strung up before the two trees in front of me, hung upside down so they looked like inverted Ys. There's still a little bit of rope left on a northernmost tree, and I wonder if some true crime junkie will be out here someday, find it, know it's from this moment, this time, and this crime. I know it's part of my job, it's been for a long time, but I still have trouble picturing the two kids who were killed out here. Kids. I say that because everyone seems like a kid to me at this age, but they're in their mid-twenties, or at least they were in their mid-twenties. They'll forever be in their mid-twenties. So, maybe that label still applies. Daniel Roebuck and Kathleen McKenzie had their entire lives ahead of them. Not that it would be any less tragic if a senior citizen had been strung up there, but... We're taught to value youth, you know, innocence, the loss of the possibility of years, decades ahead of them. It seems now that Danielle and Kathleen are destined to be just a couple of splashy headlines before people move on to the next tragedy that will inevitably come into their lives. Maybe I'll cover that one too. I have a couple words for my own headline bouncing around in my head. I just don't know how they'll fit together. Devil, slasher, swamp. Maybe cult or copycat, since this seemed reminiscent of some other murders that happened here a couple decades ago. There's something in there. The idea of something being cyclical, of recurrence. Some horror shedding its skin and being born anew. I'm just not sure what. I want it to be something that'll stir up horror, really make people aghast at what's happened here. But frankly, that's been harder and harder in recent years. You know what I mean. There are tragedies everywhere, every day. Just like I said before, we're constantly inundated with them. 
So what's to make this one any more tragic? What's to make this one shake people? I think about Kathleen and I know that she is my in. If I really want the story to stick, I have to make it about her. Sorry, Daniel. The beautiful white woman cut down in the prime of her life. That's what sells. Not for the first time and not for the last. I know that no one would make as big of a deal if I were to go missing or wind up dead in a ditch somewhere. Just a few skin tone shades and some different textured hair. It's a marvel how that works, huh? An unexpectedly cold wind cuts through me and I have to pull my jacket closer to shield me from it. I look in the direction that it came from, like I'll be able to see the someone or something that was responsible for it. Instead, all I see are the distant lights of an unidentifiable building through the trees far, far away. I can't help but think that they look like the eyes of some predator in the darkness, watching me. The Bridgewater Public Library doesn't exactly have what I need when it comes to records. Their shelves were full of airport paperbacks, bodice rippers, and the latest in the series of Teenage Hero and whatever magical MacGuffin this particular adventure covers— I wonder if the latter are the kinds of books Daniel may have liked before he grew out of that phase, before his friends told him that they weren't cool anymore. The librarian that assists me is neither the old crone people always expect when they walk into the library, nor is she the young, innocent nubile that magazines with fogged-over slipcovers behind gas station counters have taught us to expect. She's young, but she's got tattoos on her bare arms, a septum piercing, bright green eyes that look genuinely disappointed she can't be the kind of help I need. She's around the same age as Daniel Roebuck and Kathleen McKenzie, but she only knew of them. She didn't know them. That was one of the first things I asked. When I tell her who I am, my purpose here, she lifts her hand to her chin and touches it gently, and that's when I can see the tattoo of a coiled snake wrapping around her forearm. Still, she recommends I try Bridgewater College if I'm looking for facts and the history of the area. They have a much more intensive research library, she tells me. It's kind of their thing. She turns her nose up a little, says the culture there is kind of pretentious, academic to the point of snobbery. If all the professors could still be wearing those old-fashioned robes, they would. I know people don't really tip librarians, but she makes me want to. Is there anything I ask her at this library that could be of help? Her eyes light up and she seems genuinely pleased that she's able to walk me down a nearby aisle and gesture to the books on the shelves there. We're in the double zeros. I search my memory of the Dewey Decimal System, and I'm unable to come up with what double zero designates. I remember that 900 is history, because college papers ground that into my skull. 641 is cooking, thanks to nights alone needing to feed myself. But this is lost on me until she begins to pull books from the shelves. Turns out that double zeros are mythology and pseudoscience. Now I can see why she's so pleased. The tattoo on her upper left arm is a cartoonish drawing of Mothman. I can see it in full as she stretches out her arm to reach for a book on the top shelf. She tells me again that while they don't have historical records when it comes to this kind of thing, what they do have is fun stuff. Collections of tales and rumors surrounding Bridgewater, and the specific area called the Bridgewater Triangle, and what it means. Rumors, I ask her? She smiles and nods, and I tell her, hey, look, I'm a big guy. Go ahead and load me up with as many books as I can carry. I stack the books that she's given me neatly on a long, empty table, and I decide to quickly look up a list of professors from Bridgewater College. After a few minutes of browsing from the library computer, I see exactly what the librarian meant about them feeling, well, removed from time. Their website is ancient, slow largely devoid of the diverse group of students I expect to see on any modern college website. 
and instead it focused mostly entirely on the professors, the ancient building, the years of history, the prestige. I navigate around and quickly find a promising candidate, Dr. Nathaniel Hutter. His headshot reminds me of Benjamin Franklin, the kind of quiet dignity you expect of somebody who regularly uses the word academia. He gives me the vibe that he'd roast me if I told him I hadn't read the Iliad since college. Dr. Hutter is listed as a history professor, and a few of his classes seem pretty specialized. Local Native American history, American colonialism, in addition to a couple of one-on-one courses. If anyone had some legit accounts of local history, it should be him. He also strikes me as the kind of person who'd be thrilled, would puff up if someone stopped by his office hours and said, hey, I'm working on a new story. Would he like to be a featured source? Dr. Hutter's office hours don't come around until tomorrow, so I collect my books and head to the front desk. The librarian checks me out and wishes me happy reading, and I get the feeling that she really means it. Once I get to my car, I book a motel room from my phone. It's not exactly a bustling town, so they tell me the room's ready anytime that I am. All I have to do is come and collect my key. I pick up some food from a drive-thru along the way, check into my room, drop the giant pile of books directly onto the bed, and get to reading. I try to absorb everything I can about the Bridgewater Triangle. Anything that would shed a little more light on the culture, the rumors, the stories, the murders. I think that's the angle. The murders that are collected, even in the cryptozoology books I've checked out, seems like they're substantiated, verified stories on my first read-through. They use precise names and dates. It's not the anonymity of urban legends. Cheryl Lawson, whose corpse was found in 1984. Dana Zook in 1996. Stephen Trevor in 2002. In most of these Bridgewater murders, the books tell me, someone was caught, tried, and in some cases executed. John Lawrence, who they say was a veteran driven to madness after witnessing the horrors of war. They don't say which one, but I can guess. Then there's David Carmichael, who seemed like a normal, everyday guy. And Terence Richardson, who, when his house was raided, was discovered to have been housing dozens of tanks filled with pet snakes. And then, in the wake of the murders, as they always do, the rumors appear. The whispers surrounding any murder near Bridgewater, no matter how seemingly mundane, are exponentially multiplied, both in number and severity. My best guess is that John Lawrence murdered Cheryl Lawson, his girlfriend, in 1984 for reasons no more elaborate than any other man who's killed a woman throughout history. Lawrence felt small, and violence made him feel large and in control. But one of the books said that he saw something strange in the horrors of war, something that made him question the world we live in. There's an apocryphal quote from him when the police were taking him in, that he said he saw something in the horrid red mush that his best friend became when he stepped on a landmine. Something long and wriggling. Something he knew he could recreate, he could see again if only he did the same thing to someone else. Then there was David Carmichael, who became catatonic in the wake of his arrest, allegedly never speaking a single word ever again only ever drawing out long, undulating symbols on the wall of his cell long after he was convicted. The most sensational, of course, was the house of Terence Richardson. Tanks full of pet snakes kept under heat lamps, well cared for. At the same time, though, there were manic, unhinged drawings all over the walls, the floor, enormous serpents that looked like coiled rivers running all throughout his home. Books on serpent mythology from all over the world. One of the books I pulled spoke of how there was something in the forest that must have taken hold of everyone who's ever committed a horrible act inside the Bridgewater Triangle. One of the older volumes, published in the 80s, suggested a demonic influence at work. 
There's a quote from an unnamed woman who says that these were all the work of Satan killings. As if the killings weren't done by people who are worshipping Satan, but by Satan himself. And you know how Satan appears in the form of a giant serpent. Things are starting to come together. I can see the dots. I'm just not sure yet how to connect them. The same book tells me how there were several periods after such murders where the police told people not to go outside after dark, where there were strange sightings of mysterious animals and suspect strangers even in the day. There's a tale reminiscent of one of the Jersey Devil variants. A woman in some undefined area of the past, far away enough to be a legend, but close enough to be a memory, who bore a monstrous child. They say that a demon came to her and seduced her, and when their child was born, it just kept coming and coming and coming, a monstrous snake slithering its way out of her body. One story tells the tale of the native people and how their ghosts supposedly haunt the land after they were wiped out by the colonizers. The book doesn't specify which people, and I suspect the author didn't really know. After a long few hours, I decided it was time to get some sleep, though, like most nights, I know my sleep will be restless. I don't have nightmares per se, but I'm usually bombarded by strange thoughts that keep me up, just staring at the ceiling, my body all tense with anxiety instead of winding down as I wonder about what's in the shadows in the corners of my room. My therapist thinks it's probably because of my line of work. Why wouldn't it be? The crime beat is tough. And tonight, I think I can see something coiled up in the corner of my room. But I try to tell myself that it's just my imagination. If you're enjoying Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake, we would really appreciate it if you would follow us and leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Thank you. You can listen to Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake, ad-free on Amazon Music. What is Friendsgiving or really any holiday without dessert? I mean, I don't even want to know. This year, you can celebrate your friends with epic cakes, fudgy cake truffles, and the oh-so-good seasonal pie. It's a tasty new tradition everyone will love, and you don't have to work for it. That's because Milk Bar has got your back. And now you can ship Milk Bar's desserts nationwide. And just in time for Thanksgiving, for a limited time, Milk Bar is offering their delicious new pumpkin Milk Bar pie, apple cider donut cake, and apple cider donut truffles. If you act fast, you can also get your hands on their seasonal lab drop, pumpkin coffee cake cake. Oh my God. Made in limited batches straight from their experimental kitchen. Or you can opt for a classic Milk Bar pie, the famous cult favorite holiday treat made from toasted oat crust with a gooey butter filling. Every Milk Bar creation is made fresh and then thoughtfully and beautifully packaged so it arrives in perfect condition, ready to enjoy. It's never too early to plan ahead. Place an order today to schedule your treats to be delivered right before Thanksgiving. All of their treats are fridge and freezer friendly, so you can skip the stress of holiday shipping and get your desserts now. But if you waited last minute and need desserts stat, they also offer fast, even overnight, nationwide delivery. Milk Bar Treats are some of my family's favorites. My husband and I have raging sweet tooths, and they can only be satisfied with the fudgy, delicious, fresh treats that we get from Milk Bar. And the new holiday flavors are like Thanksgiving in your mouth. So try it out for yourself. Right now, Milk Bar has a special limited time offer. You can get $15 off of any order of $80 or more when you go to MilkBarStore.com slash night. You'll get $15 off an order of $80 by going to MilkBarStore.com slash night. 
Once again, that's milkbarstore.com slash night. Everything makes more sense in the daylight, even after I haven't slept well. With the sun out, the world feels like it's right side up again, and I tell myself I lost sleep over nothing. I look haggard though, as tired as I feel, but not tired enough to prevent me from driving out to Bridgewater College. It's a massive campus, sits on the highest hill in Bridgewater, looming over the rest of the town like a castle in a gothic novel. While the land goes on for acres, the college itself mostly is composed of a single building. And for some reason, that's the feature that makes me really understand what the librarian meant about their attitude, their culture here. More than their website, even. More than the faces of their professors. It looks like less of a campus and more like a fortress. Authoritarian. Imposing. I wonder when the last time any renovation was done to this place. A sign out front declared, The Bridgewater College is a historic landmark. That solved that. I wasn't sure why, but there was less of a vibe here of historic landmark and more of a vibe of stuck in the past. There's a security guard waiting in a booth near the front door and metal detectors guarding against anyone who wanted entry. I guess even historical landmarks couldn't be stuck in the past forever. Even a place like this had to adapt to the dangers of modern American campuses. The guard asks me my business, reminding me more of a bridge troll than a security guard. I tell him I'm here to see Dr. Hutter, that I'm a reporter, and I show him my ID. He lets me pass after he checks my ID and types something into his computer, and then I walk through the detector. I want to ask the guard if he's seen anything strange around here, heard anyone talking about the murders. A professor, or maybe a janitor, a lunch lady. Did they have lunch ladies at prestigious colleges like this? But there's something about the security guard that makes him seem, I don't know, in on it? I'm not even sure what the it is, but there's something about his eyes. Something that makes it feel like he's guarding this campus with a determination and a passion, and not just for a paycheck. I decide against asking him any questions and head towards Dr. Hutter's office, feeling like I've truly stepped back into the past. The building probably hasn't been renovated in decades, like the fluorescent lights and electrical sockets were installed against its will, with the barest minimum essentials to bring it into the modern world. Even when I find Dr. Hutter's office, it's dated, with a large bronze plaque on the front door. Before I knock, I check a hunch of mine. I look down at my phone, the GPS app activated. Yes, this was the building, the lights that I saw through the trees when I was down by the crime scene. When I knock on the door, Hutter says, Enter, in a stern voice. The man sitting behind the desk looks right at home in a place such as this. He, too, looks like he was pulled from another time. An old white man, long hair grayed out, glasses perched on the tip of his nose. He certainly fit the bill of a man who would look more at home in those old-timey collegiate robes instead of being crammed into khakis and a button-up. There's a pained look on his face, probably because he was interrupted, but some part of me thinks it's because he's stuck here, in this place, in this time. Like being born a couple generations too late truly hurts him. I tell him that I'm a reporter, that I'd like to learn about the murders that happened here, now, and in the past. It's this mention of the past that causes him to light up, to jump into educational mode. Someone willingly seeking out information that these kids and their cell phones seem not to care about. All I had to do was tell him what I needed, and he became an open book. After spending a couple of hours with Dr. Hutter, I drive back to the motel, the memory of my odd encounter with him replaying in my mind as I fight through drizzle that looks like it's going to be very soon turning into something much worse. 
I got a bad feeling from Hutter the whole way through. Don't really know how to describe it other than as condescending, unsettling. He tells me about the local people of the area. Again, like that library book, doesn't mention any explicit names, so I can't tell whether he's talking about indigenous tribes of people who just happen to call Bridgewater their home. He tells me how they cut a home for themselves out of dangerous swampland, and with that cutting came tales of what crawled out of the muck as humans repeatedly tried to cut away the wetlands. He tells me some of the same campfire stories I saw in the books, of UFOs and strange lights in the woods, but then he brings up something the books only hint at, what I've seen flit around the edges of the story. He says that some people around this area worshipped a snake god, a feathered serpent that may have been an import from another culture. There aren't obviously many feathered serpent gods in New England, and he tells me that because of the snake's unique ability to unhinge its jaw, people called it the devourer. He spoke through his whole office hours, and I guess he stopped when his internal clock chimed because he suddenly stood up and excused himself, said he had lessons, and asked if there was any further way he could be of assistance. It was a pretty abrupt ending, but I said no, I just shook his hand, and ever since then have found myself replaying that action specifically over and over. I had held my hand out, and he looked down at it, almost surprised at the expectation of that particular gesture. Like the idea of a hand or of touching somebody surprised him. I was just about to pull away, because look, I didn't want to make anyone touch me if they didn't want to. And then Hutter raised his hand and clapped it over mine. It was the kind of quick social self-correction I'd seen a thousand times before in every scenario imaginable. Go for a handshake and switch midstream into a hug or a fist bump that just morphed into a high five. So why did this time unsettle me so much? What was it about that weird interaction? I think about that as I drive away, my mind on other things besides the winding, empty Bridgewater backroads, which is why I almost don't see it fast enough. My headlights illuminate a shape in the middle of the road as I come around a corner, a shape I might not have seen if I didn't have the extra light. The canopy of trees over the road encloses me, barely lets me see the dark shape in the dark shade. I pump the brakes, mindful of the rain, and come to a quick and jagged stop in the middle of the road, pointing directly at the shape. Even before my mind can comprehend what's in front of me, my instinct tells me I'm seeing something that I've never seen before. My arm moves automatically and I flick my high beams on, illuminating it. It's standing on two legs, or they look like legs and it looks like it's standing, but there's nothing human about it except that it has four limbs. It's struggling to hold itself up to its full height of about six feet, and it's just shaking, standing, like that effort is just taking everything it has. The entire creature looks like it's made out of slime, like it's just struggling to hold itself together as it's standing in the middle of the road. Behind it, there's some sort of snail-like slime trail marking its passing, a thick, dark ooze that just leads back to the edge of the road all of the way to the woods. It feels like the shape is looking at me, and I can almost feel its eyes that are hidden underneath layer after layer of shifting slop, and then it lurches towards me. Again, my body moves on its own. It knows what it's doing more than I do, cranking the wheel to the left side while slamming the gas pedal. The whole car veers to the side, the dark thing barely managing to scrape the right mirror as I careen past, and it leaves a slimy print on my passenger window as I screech away. On holiday, there's nothing like doing nothing. As an Expedia member, you can save up to 30% when you add a hotel to your flight, so you can go out there 
with great ambition to do absolutely nothing for less. Expedia. Made to travel. I slammed the motel door shut behind me, turned all of the room's lights off, thinking about the trick that my mother told me when I was little on how to avoid monsters. When you're in the dark, you can see into the light, but when you're in the light, you can't see into the dark. I don't know if it'll give me any actual advantage, but as I crouch down before the window in my darkened room, I pull the curtains back just far enough for me to take a peek, and it at least makes me feel better, a little bit. I realize the motel must not have any kind of automatic lights and whoever's responsible for turning on the parking lot lamps hasn't done it yet because it's completely dark outside. The only light I can see is of the occasional passing car and residents and other folks at the motel who've left their blinds open. And it's in these dim flickering lights that I see it again. That dark, slimy creature. It's crossed the motel parking lot, that same grotesque slime trail marking a path to a room on the other side of the building. For some reason, it looks smaller this time, and I squint into the dark trying to make out what it's doing. It almost looks like it's knocking or waiting to be let in, like it's an expected guest. And I can hear a moan coming from it, even as far as where I'm hiding. No one comes to that door, and so the dark thing moves away and goes to the next room. As it moves, it braces itself with one gooey arm-like limb against the wall of the motel like someone struggling to walk, and it smears slime as it moves along. It knocks on the next door, but again, no one answers. I can see someone's in there, though. I can see the soft glow blue of the TV drifting out between the slit in their blinds, and I wonder what they're doing. Are they in the same position as me, huddling for dear life behind an improvised barricade? Are they busy, somehow? Maybe two lovers in a motel tryst, distracted from this horror by one another's bodies. It doesn't matter because they don't answer the door. No one does. The dark thing goes door to door to door, and not a single occupant answers. And then, it comes to my door. I duck down, brace my back against the door and my feet against the wall, ready to hold it shut. I know it sounds silly, but I expect a knock. Instead, it sounds like a scratching on the door. It sounded like it was testing the door to see if it would open. I look around the room for something, anything that I could use as a weapon, but there's nothing. I huddle there, my body tensed, glad that I have a free hand to lift in my nose because that's when the smell hits me. I hadn't smelled it when I saw it before, but now it's smothering, unmistakable. It's like burnt hair or scorched engine oil. Like a combination of a thousand different fiery, muddy, slimy smells that are so awful they cling to you to the inside of your nose, to your tongue. I have to clap both hands over my entire face to simply hold my breath to keep that smell out of me. And all the while that thing kept pressing up against the door. The strange thing is that it's been at my door longer than any other door it was at at the motel. I think it's because it knows I'm here. I jump up, I grab the nearby chair and thrust its back under the knob, grinding its legs into the carpet as a brace. It'll be enough to hold, I think, or at least hold it long enough while I escape. I don't bother grabbing anything, would like to think I have a higher brain function, would like to say that's how people truly get hurt in survival scenarios, but the reality is I'm simply too afraid to think of anything besides my life. I run into the bathroom, slam the door shut behind me, just in case the dark thing manages to get through the first door. Maybe the second one will buy me a few more precious moments. I climb into the tub, grab the window, thrust it open, and before I know it, I'm out into the night. And that is when it hits me. 
physically. Something comes down on me fast and hard and I'm face down in the mud. I expect my ears to ring, but there's no noise at all. It's almost like most of my senses have been knocked from the world. Sound is gone. Touch is barely still there. It feels like my limbs are suddenly covered in felt, and the pain in the back of my head is all of a sudden a distant fuzz, and I'm only half registering the mud and grass beneath me. I can taste it, though, a mouthful of mud, and I can smell it, along with the horrid smells of that dark thing. I look up, my vision clouding at its edges, and I see it looming over me. But there's something familiar about it now, something I suspect that was always there but I hadn't noticed before in my panic. I can see the outline of what looks like jeans behind a wall of dark slime, and buried in the same slime are bare feet standing in the mud right in front of my face. I follow the path of the body up, and now I can tell that what I see was once human. I can see the hourglass shape of a woman. She wears a simple pullover sweater, and there are tattered mats of blonde hair covering her face. She's covered in so much of that dark slime that it's hard to see her face, but it's unmistakable. The dark thing gazes down at me, and I look up at it, up into the face of Kathleen McKenzie. They drag me from the motel. I say they because there's more than one of them. A second one comes out of the woods, and I realize this must have been the one that I saw on the road. It's different, bigger, broader. When the second thing comes closer, I can see its detail as well. There's a t-shirt whose graphic has long since been smudged into oblivion, and a tattered old pair of khakis and boots underneath that dripping layer of slime. And then I realize that it's Daniel Roebuck, Kathleen and Daniel, dead and yet alive. They stand above me like bouncers, almost daring me to move, which doesn't really matter because I can barely hold on to consciousness anyway. I'm distantly aware of icy iron hands on my limbs, dragging me somewhere, but all I get are glimpses of the journey. A darkened patch of woods here, a glimpse of moonlight through the canopy there. I feel myself dragged through the woods, mud accumulating all over my clothes and into my shoes. I try to find my voice as they drag me to tell them I'm here to help, but am I really? I came to write a story about them to, in some way, exploit them but it seems like someone else has done far worse. I try to tell them this, but it doesn't seem like they hear me. I'm not even sure if I make much sense. I can tell that I'm bleeding. I can feel it running down the back of my head, my neck, pulling in spots inside my clothes. I must not be making sense with that blood loss, or maybe they're not even physically capable of hearing me anymore. I'm not sure how long it is before we stop, before Kathleen and Daniel unceremoniously flop me down. It's pitch black, but I know this movement around me. I can barely lift my head to see. I can hear twigs cracking underfoot as someone moves around, manage to look and see some light in the distance, and realize it's familiar. It's Bridgewater College. We're in the same place where Kathleen and Daniel were found. The same place where this all began in the first place. And a voice tells me, ironic, isn't it? Dr. Hutter. When I turn my head, he's there, standing in front of that large tree stump I thought was a podium, looking for all the world like the old-timey professor he seemed to so want to be. He has those old collegiate robes on, looks like he's about to address an auditorium full of students, not an empty forest. Hutter tells me not to worry, that it will all be over soon. The whole time, he's smiling. 
He looks away from me, not even waiting for me to answer, and instead is looking towards a nearby fallen tree. I follow his gaze and wonder how bad the wound on my head is when I see the tree move. No, move isn't the right word. It's not wrong, but it's not close enough either. Slithers, that's the word. The fallen tree slithers in one direction, its massive body undulating through the rain and mud as it turns. It's impossible to see the intricacies of such undulating movements, how something moves without limbs. All I really see is this huge shape in front of me. What I thought was bark is really scales, and what I thought were leaves are feathers coating its massive body. But it's less the sight and more the sound of it that terrifies me. I can hear it going on forever in either direction, the massive low thrum of this enormous body moving against the forest floor, pushing everything from brush to rocks and even trees out of its way. This is it, I think. This is what so many of those books warned me about. This is the unknowable thing John Lawrence saw in that landmine when his friend exploded. This is what David Carmichael began drawing on the walls of his prison cell, why Terence Richardson had so many heated lamp tanks in his home. This is the creature that came spewing forth from the poor, unfortunate woman in those demon tales. This was the creature that Hutter called the Devourer. The forest parts for the creature and I finally see its head. Looking directly at it hurts my eyes, my brain, as if I can feel a metaphysical wound open up in my body. I look away, glimpsing it only out of the corner of my eye, which seems to help. I can see its huge reptilian mass lurch forward towards Hutter, who drops to his knees before it, proclaiming that he's brought a sacrifice to his lord as he gestures towards me. The massive serpentine head turns towards me and I can hear the air itself move to make way for its presence. It moves so quickly I barely notice it, a coiled strike and I feel jaw surrounding me, fangs cutting into me, pushing me backwards down a massive serpentine throat. It's tight, humid, boiled, but only for a moment and then I open my eyes and I can see. I can see endless, empty, vast space, like I'm floating through the void, through nothingness. I can see planets in the distance galaxies, stars warping all around me. For a moment, my body struggles, knowing that there is no air here, but for some reason, I don't feel the need to breathe. It's then that I realize what I'm seeing. This is everything that it has already devoured, and I see that there is room for so, so much more. Dear listener, While some of the events in this story might seem outlandish to you, many of them are in fact based on reality. The Bridgewater Triangle is a real location in southeastern Massachusetts comparable to the Bermuda Triangle with a similar amount of supernatural activity. The most infamous and ancient location in the Triangle is Hockamock Swamp, which was used as a stronghold against English colonizers. The colonizers referred to it as the Devil's Swamp and deemed the land to be worthless, and there was a failed attempt to drain it and convert it into farmland, an attempt that some say has continued to contribute to its reputation as cursed. The swamp was also once home to a historical rock formation known as Profile Rock or the Old Man of Joshua's Mountain. Viewed from a certain angle, Profile Rock looks like its namesake, the profile of a person. 
It is a sacred location to the local Wampanoags who believe it to be the image of their chief, Massasoit, who lived from 1581 to 1661. While it was once a tourist attraction, Profile Rock began to suffer from incidents of graffiti and vandalism, and a large portion of the rock broke off in 2019 and has since been cordoned off due to unsafe conditions. For its entire history, though, there have been reports of mysteriously ghostly figures seen at Profile Rock, a figure with outstretched arms who waves at those who pass by, people who go on to disappear. But the hauntings and mysterious occurrences don't only happen in the secluded areas of the Triangle. The Taunton State Hospital and Bridgewater State University are both home to numerous reports of supernatural occurrences. Visitors to both sites have reported ghost sightings, including being pushed and pulled by unseen forces. Even the Hornbine School, a historic one-room schoolhouse that today acts as a history museum, quite open to the public, is allegedly haunted by its former inhabitants. The triangle itself has had many suspected instances of cult activity, which inspired the bulk of this story, including two well-known instances in 1998, where separate groups of mutilated animals were discovered. In both cases, the animals were grotesquely dismembered in what many consider some sort of ritualistic sacrifice. Also, in both cases, the perpetrators were never captured. The Triangle has had so many supernatural sightings ranging from UFOs and orbs of light to unnatural and mythological animals. Some of the reports concerned animals that were outlandish in that area but not impossible, like bears or panthers. But then there are fantastic claims of giant snakes and wild dogs. Some of these rumors appear based, at least in part, in truth. In 2006, the area was inundated with reports of vicious stray dogs and even an escaped emu wandering the forest. More cryptically, a local police sergeant is even on record reporting a sighting of some sort of giant bird or pterodactyl, which apparently is not an uncommon sight there. A more centralized location for supernatural happenings in the Triangle is specifically Freetown Fall River State Forest, which is also a haven for pranks and other strange incidents, not supernatural, but certainly still dangerous. Illegal dumping incidences were reported in 1996 and 2016, where abandoned boats and even toxic hazardous waste was discovered. In 2016, someone stretched taut cables, concealing them across walking trails, which apparently were meant to cause local dirt bikers to crash and become thrown from the trails. The state forest also suffered its fair share of harsh fires. Hundreds of acres burned in separate fires in 1976, 80, 88, 91, and 2001. But the most frightening occurrences are by far the murders. In November 1978, the body of a local cheerleader who was abducted earlier that year was found tied to a tree. That would be the first of many bodies found in the forest over the years, some of which local authorities contributed to satanic cult activity. Many people believe there are dark forces in that forest that drive folks to do terrifying things, but others believe it's not just regular people behind all the activity, that it is in fact the work of a shape-shifting humanoid creature found in Wampanoag folklore called the Pukwedgi. We will never be sure what about that forest inspires the many frightening and disturbing things that have been witnessed there, but we can be sure it's a place that you would not want to be found in after dark. Tonight's tale was written, 
by Travis Madden. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's edited by Anton Doty and Matt Sewell. It's mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake. Now that you're spooked to the bone and won't be able to sleep all night, please go ahead and follow, rate, and review us. Sweet dreams.